Last week, Dave had us in Acts 16, and uh, just by way of reminder, uh, Paul and his trio, they were in the city of Philippi, and Paul and Silas had been imprisoned, and we saw some miraculous things happening, like the uh, the, the guard getting saved, the prisoner, the jailer, uh, was converted, and we left with Paul being escorted out of Philippi. They, it's actually like they begged him and urged him to leave by the officials because they realized that he was was a Roman citizen along with Silas. He also was a Roman citizen, and they realized that the treatment they received was contrary to Roman law, so they pushed them out. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they did not leave Philippi afraid. They did not leave with their tails between their legs. We see this every time with Paul and his companions when they face opposition. They leave boldly, and they go on to the next place ready to preach the gospel. They didn't pack it in. They didn't say, oh, well, it was a little too hard there in Drumheller, so I might as well stop and give up. But they keep moving on. They keep going. And we can learn a lot from this because we as Christians, we quit so easily when we face pushback, especially us Canadian Christians. We receive a little bit of pushback and we become discouraged when people attack our belief systems, but not so with this group. They knew that their mission was commissioned by God, somebody greater than any force, any government on this face of the planet. They knew that the Holy Spirit empowered their mission and they stood upon the teaching of Scripture. So they were boldly going forward, not not scared, not leaving. They even stopped in to check in with Lydia in the new church that was being birthed. If you were afraid, you'd want to get out of that town as quick as possible. But we see them checking in and bringing encouragement and saying their goodbyes. And with their goodbyes, that's where we pick up our reading in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, go ahead and open them or turn them on, and we'll be spending our time in Acts 17 today. Acts 17, 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So this journey from Philippi to Thessalonica would probably be about a three-day journey for this group if conditions were well. And they were at their destination of Thessalonica. They came upon a thriving city of probably about 200,000 people. In the ancient world, this is massive. It's even big to us living in a town of 8,000. This was 200,000 people. And unlike Philippi, there was a synagogue here. And remember, this was Paul's custom. It was his strategy. He loved going into the synagogues and he loved uh, teaching the word of God to them because he knew that there was common ground and he knew that the spirit would move upon their hearts and bring about results. Starting in verse 2, it says, And Paul went in as was his custom, and on on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them, and from scriptures explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ Sorry, I lost my spot. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what we see is Paul not presenting the gospel message through philosophical arguments or eloquent oratory. He was very simple. Paul grounded his faith in the message of the gospel itself, the power of scripture that could soften the most hardened hearts. He knew that the Old Testament scripture that he was basing everything on, he had common ground with his listeners, the Jews. And that is what he built 
his word upon. We've got to remember that Jews would likely, all of them in this context, probably had the whole Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, or at least very, very familiar with it. So he had common ground with his listeners. And what we see from these two, a couple of verses is that Paul's public ministry has a three-pronged approach. First, he reasoned with them from scriptures. The word reasoned here is the same word for dialogue. There was an exchange. Maybe there was some question and answers going on. They were having a conversation in and around scripture, basing it all on scripture and having a friendly conversation. He didn't go in there with all guns blazing. Let me tell you why you're wrong and I'm right and just start shooting off all these Bible bullets to make his point. He went in there humbly, ready to have a conversation, a dialogue around scripture. And just a helpful note for those of you who uh, maybe forgot, but when the New Testament talks about scripture, it's mostly always talking about Old Testament scripture because the New Testament was still being written at this point. So he, when he's talking about scripture, he's basing everything in the Old Testament. Secondly, in Paul's uh, approach, we see him explaining scriptures, seen in verse 3. And this word explaining literally means opening, opening up. This is a very strong word, Luke. And remember, Luke is the author of Acts, but Luke in his gospel used this same word to describe the opening of the womb in Luke 2.23. So the opening to life, the conception of life. This is a powerful word that he's using. He uses this word again in Luke 24, talking about when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with the two men, and it said, our hearts burned within us as he opened our minds to scripture. Paul opened the scripture with clarity in simplicity, which is a priceless virtue that's not always appreciated by people. For example, I read about a freshman who uh, was, uh, you know, first year of school, and he heard a sermon by the great George W. Truett, who was an amazing preacher, and he said, so that was George Truett, huh? He didn't even use one word I didn't understand. He can't be that smart. As if using words that far past our intellect is a sign of a good sermon. And anyone who has preached a message in this room knows that's probably where we wrestle the most. How can I take this and make this understandable? And we're wrestling because I could fill a sermon with words that you have never heard, but how would that benefit you? So that's what we see with Paul, he's being simple. And as I pondered on the simplicity of Paul's message, it made me think of a question I once read online. It said, how would you write on your resume that I changed a light bulb? There is some feedback coming. I think the gain might be high. Um, and it said, how would you write you changed a light bulb on a resume? The answer was, I single-handedly managed the successful upgrade and deployment of new environmental illumination system with zero cost overruns and zero safety incidents. <laughs> I'm going to write that in my next pastoral report to the elders, right? Like, what did you do? Well, I changed the light bulb. Well, just keep it simple, stupid, right? Because simplicity can make all the difference between communication and confusion. We have the greatest message ever. And we have the honor and privilege to share this message with our friends, our families, and our neighbors. And we sometimes hide that message, make it hard to understand simply because 
of the verbiage we use. Like we're ashamed of how simple the gospel is. We look at it, how simple it is, and we say, well, we got to beef this up a little. We got to make this look a little more pretty. And we're embarrassed of the simplicity of the gospel. But we should be like Paul, who said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of this gospel. Why? Who knows the verse? It's the power of God on salvation. You all get badges after service here. So it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. We should not be ashamed. We should not feel the pressure to make excuses for the gospel. We just give the gospel pure and simple. The third prong approach in, in, in Paul's approach is proving. He reasoned with them. He then explained to them, and now he's going in for the touchdown to prove to them why this is the truth. He was proving the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the message of Jesus, he had to suffer. And he connects this with Christ that he is that Messiah, this long-awaited, expected king. This is Jesus. And we see that this was a stumbling block to the Jews in 1 Corinthians 1.23. Because for them, the Messiah, the long-expected king, he was coming to release the Jews from Roman oppression, from Roman rule. And he would establish a new nationalistic state. To accomplish these goals, he, they believed that the Christ would rise up as a mighty king and a military leader, something like David. So when Paul stands in these synagogues, just Picture yourself as a Jew for a moment who has all this background and all this expectation and he stands up and says, hey, by the way, that Jesus who died on a Roman cross, who died at the hands of Roman soldiers, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. You can see how that would offend the Jewish worldview. But Paul, like I said, he came in with great patience and care, taking time to complete his three-pronged approach to call for a heart response. Our text indicates that Paul was in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, like three Sundays after Sunday in a sense. And he probably ministered in that area for much longer. The New Testament doesn't tell us this, but we know that this was not a one-shot approach. He didn't just walk into the synagogue, lob off a grenade, and then walk out and say, figure it out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Jews. So he, <laughs> sorry, that came out way worse than I wanted it to. I apologize about that. <laughs> Anyways, scratch that one from the online record. And so, <laughs> oh, wow. So Paul was particularly noble in that he treated people with respect and dignity. And he did not demand that they swallow what he said simply because he said it. E.M. Griffin, in his book, The Mind Changers, he has a chapter entitled, The Eth Ethic of a Christian Persuader. And he simply stated in this about our evangelism, he says, any persuasive effort which restricts another's freedom to choose for or against Christ is wrong. So what does that mean? He means in sharing our faith, we must give room to move and think to the people who are listening. You and I, we have sat in church, we have grappled with these issues, we have wrestled with these issues time and time again and over our Christian experience. But when you share this gospel, even with someone growing up in Canada, this could very well be the first time they've ever heard it. And we have to give them room to grapple with the truth of God, not just blindly accept it, not just shove it down their throat and say, this is truth, so you must believe it, because that's damaging. Even though it is truth, we have to give them room 
to work with it. This is not about you going around on a crusade and smacking everyone over the head with a hardback King James Bible. This is about entering in, willingly entering into conversations that could take days, that could take weeks or months, and even years. I'm currently in a dialogue with a community member here in Drumheller that has been well over a year now with absolutely no fruit. But it's willingly being patient to let them grapple with these truths. And I've been in other conversations that have only taken days or weeks because we're not the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that and be patient as we share this good news is that it is God and God alone through the power of the Holy Spirit who softens hearts, who opens minds, and who brings about salvation. Not you or I. All you and I get to do is be imperfect vessels who share his perfect message. So Paul showed us this patience as he showed diligence in sharing the gospel with those he encountered. And verse 4 shows us the fruits of his diligence. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So uh, a few Jews believed an impressive number of God-fearing Greeks believed and including a prominent number of leading women. And this is showing us that a spiritual nobility is beginning to form in Thessalonica. But as usual, as God begins to bless their endeavors and the church begins to expand and grow, we see trouble on the way. What we see from verse 4 to about verse 9 is what happens everywhere Paul goes, which is conversion and opposition. We see conversion to the faith, and then we see opposition to that conversion. Verse 5 says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So we see jealousy arise again in the Jews. We read about this earlier in the book of Acts, but we see the same jealousy arise. And the Jews, with their misplaced zeal, they went to the center of the city and they raised up a mob against Paul. One of the, a couple of the theologians that I was reading on this, they were saying that they probably went down to uh, the bums, the homeless of the community, offered them money and raised up a mob as professional rioters. And don't connect that to anything you You've read in the news, okay? So this resulted in uh, Thessalonica going in an uproar, and these wicked, unruly men descended onto the house of Jason like flies to meat. And, and Luke describes in verse 6 to 7 the nature of this mob, starting in verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers, of the brothers, before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also and Jason has received them and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king Jesus in one sense what the critics this mob said was true though in the natural state the world is already upside down the world has turned up the wrong side up at the fall and has been going in reverse ever since. So when the men and women in Thessalonica encountered the gospel and their lives were changed, 180, the people around them began to see them as upside down, as different. As believers, we live right side up in a topsy-turvy world. We, as believers here in Drumheller, we live right side up in this topsy-turvy town. And because we live this way, we are seen as fools in the eyes of 
of the world. We are seen as the ones who are living upside down. So the mob hit the nail on the head. Christians should turn the world upside down or right side up, depending on how you look at it. And this is exactly what Christians do when we faithfully proclaim the gospel. It turns the world upside down. We as Christians must not proclaim not even another king, but the king of kings and lord of lords. I try to stay as far away as pol from political conversations as I can, but at the end of the day, there's a fundamental truth about the gospel, that it is a political message, because we proclaim Christ as our king. He is king of us, and we are living in this world as aliens, and he is our ruler. We are subject to the ruling authorities, yes, don't hear me wrong, but we claim kingship of Christ. That's above our prime minister, that's above any presidents, that's above any king in the world. And could you imagine in this day and age when Caesar would have you killed for pronouncing that, how bold these men and women were to proclaim King Jesus over Caesar. But conversely, we see so many churches today that have relinquished the gospel and doctrinal fidelity, and instead they serve the cultural whims, and they alter the core tenets of the faith in order to modernize it in keeping with the times. And a plethora of churches today have signed up for the cultural and moral revolutions that have been sweeping the North America for the past 60 years, and by doing so, they are committing high treason against the king of the cosmos. Because when a church denies the sole kingship of Christ, it is no longer a church. It is just a country club that is trying to entertain and build their numbers by giving the things that the people want. They're itching, they're scratching ears. So when Christians try to blend into the flow of culture rather than turn the culture upside down with the gospel, they are no longer practicing faithfulness. I heard one prominent preacher once say that I see more of the world impacting the church than the church impacting the world. Let that just sink in for a moment. What are we here at Fellowship Baptist Church being impacted by? By King Jesus or by the cultural whims of this world? Faithful Christians disrupt because they carry a message which pierces the very heart of men. And it offends the corrupt minds. Excuse me as I take a drink. When Christians faithfully proclaim the gospel, they seek to dismantle Satan's work and hold on this world. Make no mistake, gospel preaching, proclamation, sharing, and conversation will turn the world upside down. And this is a glorious truth. And it goes without saying, and I shouldn't even have to say it, but I will because of the world we live in, this does not give you permission to go around and be a jerk and go around and be on a crusade by turning the world upside down, by just throwing in grenades everywhere you go and hurting people. I always say this, but what was the last miracle that Jesus healed? It was the ear of Peter, when, of the soldier of Peter lobbed off. And a lot of times we take our sword and we lob off limbs all over the place and saying we're doing it for Christ. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to turn the world upside down by living like Christ, by loving others, by serving others, by calling sin, sin, and by proclaiming this simple message. Amen? Verse 8 to 9 says, And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them 
go. So Thessalonica, as we said, boasted about 200,000 residents. This was no small city. The chaos could have easily uh, rapidly escalated out of control, engulfed the entire city in violence, which would have caused enormous problems for these civic leaders. And failure to subdue this mob would have led to a judgment of incompetence and inability to govern by the authorities that be in Rome, the ones who they had to report to. This is similar to Pontius Pilate's situation when he's seen no fault in Jesus, but he knew if he didn't do what the crowd asked, there would have been an uproar. The city would have went into a full-out riot, and he would have been deemed incompetent. So these local leaders, therefore, needed to end these, this revolt, lest they be deemed incompetent. So here the mob, as we saw, they, they, they descend, they target the house of Jason. Jason was probably a wealthy believer who offered his house as refuge to Paul and Silas and to the church meetings. It's crucial to note, I think you all know this, but early Christianity had no building like we're privileged to have. Uh, they met in believers' homes to meet in. And because the believers met in these larger houses of wealthier believers um, uh, and, and they could practice their hospitality that way, people in the town would know where the church was meeting. So they knew that it was at Jason's house. They head to Jason's uh, house and they pull him out before the people. And from verse 1 to 9, we notice a threefold pattern. First, Paul preaches. Second, the gospel advances. And third, the message elicits a response. While some from their sin, uh, sorry, for, some turn from their sins and believe in Christ, others oppose it. Wherever the gospel spreads, it will provoke a response. A person cannot answer the gospel with neutrality when presented with the message of Christ. Either non-believers will repent and turn to Christ, or they'll turn away. And oftentimes, the rejection can turn hostile, which happens in Acts 17. When the gospel collides with unbelief, it will spark flames of discord in controversy. I remember this time when I was sharing the gospel in the streets of Chatham. We would tend to do street ministry after hours when the bars were full. There was tons of bars downtown Chatham and we would stand outside and catch them when they were having smokes. And uh, we were standing outside of this one bar called the Elephant's Nest and they, they actually formed a circle around us and we, they gave us the opportunity to open air, preach the gospel to them in this circle. And then I, and out of nowhere, um, this, this, these two great big men, they boot the door open and they're huge and I'm tiny. And they, they said, they screamed at the top of their lungs, where are the Christians? And the crowd looked at them and then looked at me and my friend. And we are, you know, <laughs> and this gentleman grabbed me by my shirt, picked me up and slammed me into the wall. And he put his nose on my nose and he screamed in my face, how dare you preach this? How dare you talk about Jesus? He is he's a false God and he's going on and on. He was half drunk. I couldn't understand him. All I knew is I'm probably dying tonight. And he, he threw me off the wall and I had a little bit more wisdom in my life at this point. And I said, you guys have a good night. We're going to move on. And as we were walking, he grabbed a beer bottle and whipped it and it shattered on the back of my ankle. And what we see there is that the gospel, when it collides with unbelief and maybe a little bit of alcohol, it will spark flames of discord and controversy. 
But then we come to verse 10 in our text today, which brings about a natural transition for us. And what we see happening here is that Paul, again, is being forced to flee by night. It is, and it's no wonder that we come to verses in Thessalonians 2.17 with language like this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavor more eagerly and with great desire to see you face-to-face. Paul loved these people he was working with. He loved the Thessalonians. He didn't want to leave, and he was likely saddened to leave so abruptly, but he was forced yet again. But let's pick up our reading in verse 10 of Acts 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, and now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul and Silas are in Berea. And first off, we see uh, Paul again returning to synagogue. He'd use these places as natural places to have gospel conversations. And in the same way, you and I would be surprised by the number of places where natural gospel conversations can take place. You can steward simple conversations towards spiritual matters. You know, when you're getting your hair cut, they can't go anywhere anyways. They're stuck, right? You got at least 20 minutes if you're a guide to share the gospel with them. They might give you a horrible cut. You know, I, I, I say refrain that they're shaving you though. Just, just wait. Um, but, uh, you know, with your coworkers or when you see your neighbors out in the yard, why not go help them pick weeds, start a conversation, grow in relationship with them. Let them get to know you as they see you live out your faith. God has orchestrated a multiple Uh, multiple opportunities for you to share the gospel. We just choose to be blind to them. Secondly, we see a contrast with the Berean Jews. Luke tells us that they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. And they're not more noble because they didn't beat them. They didn't run them out of town. They're not more noble because they're more modern or knew more scripture. Rather, because they received the spoken word with eagerness in examining the scriptures to make sure everything lined up. They were concerned that Paul might be trying to pull a fast one on them. So they wanted to make sure everything was in line. So they're eager. Eagerness carries the idea of rushing forward, kind of like when you go to a concert and they open the doors and people rush the stage. I know it's a little different in here. We rush to the back seats and get forced to go forward. But they rushed. They rushed forward with eagerness. And Luke calls them noble because of that. And their eagerness is a rushing forward to hear God's word. Eagerness makes all the difference in our flavor, quality, and nobility of our Christian lives. We, would be, we, we should be eager to read and hear God's word. The Bible says a lot about itself, but one verse I really like is Romans 10, 17 that says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We should be eager to hear the word of Christ. George Mueller, it said that he read the Bible over 200 times from cover to cover. And that certainly is a primary reason why he was such a godly, faith-filled man. If you don't know who George Mueller is, do yourself a favor and read his biography. He is an excellent man, but all of us should be constantly reading our word, digging in, you know, comparing scriptures, rushing to it with eagerness, hearing the spoken word of the Lord. He gives us that desire, and, he, and we should be eager to run with it. But the Bereans were not just considered noble because of their eagerness. 
It's what they also did after they heard the message. They were considered noble because they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They eagerly but cautiously listened, and then they compared everything they heard to the touchstone of scripture. Everything they heard. Acceptance of teaching without discernment is not a Christian virtue. Luke congratulated Bereans because they avoided the pre-digested food rather than taking the easy way they chose to hunt it out for themselves, to dig in and to eat it for themselves rather than just being spoon-fed like a baby. They didn't blindly accept everything. If we listen uncritically to only one preacher and we only read only one author, even if he's as great as C.S. Lewis, we're in danger if we're not filtering everything through Scripture. Even myself, I get tons of things wrong. We should be filtering everything through the Scripture. Don't blindly accept what people say. Don't let people tell you what to believe. Anchor yourself first and foremost in God's Word. Wrestle with it. Know what you believe because, uh, because you have worked it out in Scripture. Not because I told you to believe it. Not because you're a Baptist or anything like that. But because you have worked it out in Scripture. I'm not saying don't use guides. I use guides when I prep my sermons. Guides are helpful. They keep us in line. They keep us from faltering into heresy, right? If you're coming up with something new after 2,000 plus years of church history and theologians that everyone else has quote-unquote missed, then I'm just going to start calling you Joseph Smith, okay? But in all seriousness, though the Bereans were cautious, they were open and remained open, they were people who, they weren't just people who liked to debate. We all know that Bible nerd who just has to disagree with everything because he, they didn't parse the Greek word just properly or whatever, anything like that. And they just arguing for the sake to argue. That wasn't the Bereans. They were cautious. They wanted to make sure everything was in scripture and then they were open to learning. And that's how we should be too. Some of the Jews in Thessalonica did not listen but the Bereans did. And it's often said of, uh, of the exchange of ideas in the modern day as the dialogue of the deaf. We all just want to share our opinions, share our views, and we don't listen to anyone else. And then we just share our opinions and share more views. It's the dialogue of the deaf. Everyone is just giving their opinions. But Christ, the Christian life can be most stimulating if we allow ourselves to be open to learning and growing, continually immersing ourselves in Scripture. God's Word will keep us in touch with the fundamental issues of life, and it will keep us alive. It will keep us growing, and it will grow, it will grow as honorable ambassadors of Jesus. Preachers of the Word must uh, rightly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. That is my sole and primary responsibility to you who sit here in these seats, that I guard my calendar, that I can be faithful to the word of God to make sure that you are getting meat and not something false. But even though I do that, it is still your responsibility as a congregation to test all the words I preach and ensure that the message does indeed accord with the revelation of God's will. The Berean community, they heard Paul's message, they searched the scriptures, and by God's grace, they came to the same understanding of the truth of the gospel that Paul proclaimed, as we see in verse 12, which says, Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek, 
women of high standing as well as men. So they came to saving faith because they heard the God the gospel, with humble hearts, and they sought to understand its claims. The Christian life is not a, uh, the Christian faith is not a blind faith. The Bible makes claims that require deep contemplation. When you become a Christian, you are not required to turn your brain off and just accept everything. It's actually turning your brain on, contemplating these truths. The Bible itself lays claim to absolute authority and inserts only one way to eternal life. Faith, therefore, must not be seen as jumping off a cliff. That's not what Christian faith is. It's not blindly just jumping off a cliff. So let's not describe it that way. Instead, we come to understand by God's grace the the truth claims of Scripture, and we place our faith in that, this well-reasoned, well-articulated power of the gospel. Our salvation is not blind. It's rooted in the revelation of God's word, his unchanging word that has no errors, has not been changed. It's infallible and you can trust it. It's the power of God's word. So while Paul had much success in Berea, the Jews from Thessalonica followed him and found him in Berea. Uh, Let's pick up our reading in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed." So they, again, they attempted to agitate the people. And in all likelihood, they were trying to raise a mob up again to actually kill Paul. They're just done with him at this point. He keeps escaping. Let's just end our problem. And the brothers, as they did in Thessalonica, the Bereans also smuggled Paul out of the city by night, sending him away. And then Luke tells us that Silas and Timothy remained while Paul proceeded away. And likely that's because Paul was public enemy number one, not Timothy or Silas. So and, and, and it also suggests that Paul probably didn't spend as much time in Berea as he has in other places. So leaving Timothy and Silas, his purpose was to build up the church, to grow them up, and then to rejoin with Paul. So in conclusion, as we end, the Bereans' understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture is every bit as important today as it was then. Although we are historically far removed from the apostles, we have their divinely inspired apostolic message in the Bible, which, by the way, is no less powerful or authentic than the Apostle Paul standing in this pulpit today. We have the inspired word of God. We got to get out of the thinking that it would be better if we could just have a conversation with them. No, it wouldn't. We have their words. This is just as good. So in comparison to the Bereans or anyone else in the first century, how far better are we off who have the entirety of Scripture in one book, in our hands, in our language, available to us? The key is to trust now the sufficiency and authority of the Bible, grounded in the power of the Spirit. The Bible is the Word of God, and we should be like the Bereans and be eager, rushing to it. We should be like what we see happening in the Reformation with Luther, who declared, unless I am convinced from Scripture, I cannot recant my 
teachings. We cannot afford to lose this Berean understanding. We cannot afford to lose this reformational principle that the Bible can be read and understood by anyone who reads or hears it. Did you hear that? The Bible can be read and understood by anyone who reads and hears it. And that's fundamental for us turning the world upside down. This is not to say that there are no difficulties in Scripture. I think we've all come across those. This is not to say that one Scripture is as easy to understand as the next. But what this is to say is that the message of God's salvation in Christ Jesus is crystal clear for anyone who reads it with eyes of faith. The world changes, but there is no historical, cultural, political, or social gap large enough to nullify the sufficiency of your Bible. You can trust it, and my friends, you will never exhaust it. Amen? Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the examples we see in Scripture. And Father, we're thankful that as we look at these examples, we don't filter them through the idea that we have to strive to live up to them in order to be accepted by you. But Father, we are accepted by you through the death and resurrection of your Son, that we are now counted as righteous through him. And Father, now we get to live in accordance to that, Lord Jesus, that we get to live from that. So Father, I do pray that as we go back to our context, as we go into our homes, as we go to our workplaces and back into our community, you know what we're dealt, uh, that is waiting for us as we walk uh, out these doors, Lord. And I pray that we can live the gospel as we enter into those, that we would transform the surroundings that we enter into, that we would turn the community of Drumheller upside down with the love of Christ. Father, we can only do that by your grace and by your power. And Father, by a hunger for your word as your word transforms us. So Father, give us that hunger. Give us that eagerness. And Father, lead and guide us as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.